Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, I talk with best-selling author of Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance, about culture, poverty, and public policy. Attorney Floyd Abrams discusses how the U.S. uniquely protects freedom of speech. Kentucky Representative Thomas Massey explains why Congress should end the U.S. Department of Education. And Cato's David Beer and Senator Ron Johnson discuss a way to put states in charge of more immigration. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, has uh, been uh, remarkably popular, and it's been, uh, I would suspect, especially popular among a lot of people who didn't read it. Um, I'm here talking with two uh, contributors to the new Cato Institute volume, Anti-Piketty, Capital for the 21st uh, Century. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Don Boudreau is a professor of economics at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, also my master's thesis advisor at George Mason University. So gentlemen, welcome. Well, happy to be here. Pleasure. So let's start here with uh, the argument that uh, Piketty puts forward, which is essentially that if you're lucky enough to be someone who can grab a big hunk of capital, which is a, a large uh, black mass, I believe, and hitch your wagon to capital, that you're going to be wealthier than those who have not had that opportunity and the disparity between uh, your wealth and those other people's wealth will continue to increase infinitely. Is that basically the argument? Pretty much. I think if Piketty were here, he would describe it differently, but I think he'd be wrong to describe it differently. That's it. The, one of my biggest complaints about the book, and I have many, is that uh, for Piketty, capital just happens. Asset values just increase automatically. Uh, no human volition, no human creativity, no competition, no economic activity as we know it occurs. It's just this mass of capital that just expands independent of any human action. And those who are lucky enough to grab a chunk of it, they'll get richer over time. Those who don't grab a chunk or who grab only too small a chunk, they don't get richer over time. He also seems to assume that inequality is by definition something that's bad that he ignores the overall improvement in the level of, of prosperity in mankind and just kind of assumes that as long as that prosperity is unequally divided, there's something wrong with it. Uh, he actually at one point criticizes China uh, for growing more unequal, despite the fact that uh, billions, tens of billions of Chinese have been lifted out of abject poverty by, their, uh, by the growth there. Yes, that's a great point. The only inequality that he looks at are those that can be measured in money. He looks at wealth inequalities, he looks at income inequalities, but only measured in money. Uh, he pays very little attention to uh, people's abilities to consume. And as Mike points out, uh, that's really what matters, your ability to consume goods and services. And in China, the, 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 many of the formerly poor people can now consume a lot more goods and services, and he ignores that as a relevant factor. Let's look at the argument he's making and dig down into the key uh, element of Piketty's book is R greater than G, mm -hmm. and these are growth rates of uh, capital R and Rate, G, rate of return, yeah. And G, which is the uh, wages, I suppose. Well, growth rate of the economy out of which wages are paid. Okay. Yeah. So uh, for people who are mere 
uh, wage slaves, to borrow the term? Why is he expecting that their uh, fortunes will be will grow, but at a slower rate? That's a good question. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I've never quite understood the appeal of this uh, r greater than g uh, uh, e equation. Uh, r does not grow automatically. Uh, to, for R to grow, it requires, again, entrepreneurship, creativity. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it requires good institutions. Uh, R has grown a lot faster in China over the past 30 years than it did under Mao, and largely because its institutions have, have changed for the better. The growth rate uh, of the economy itself, of course, is connected with the growth rate of, of capital. But as as capital grows faster in a market economy, as its, as its value increases, which means as it becomes more productive, that increases the growth rate of the economy. That makes workers more productive, which over time increases their real wages. So I don't understand—I've I, never quite understood how he so, can so cavalierly go from writing R greater than G and then predicting uh, uh, these calamities. Yeah, he ignores the role of risk in, in this as well, or volatility, and uh, depending on the period of time you want to talk, there's clearly cases where uh, R has not grown uh, faster than G. Uh, on the other hand, I do think you can say that, over, for most part, that uh, capital uh, returns have exceeded wage returns over time, over labor returns, which would seem to me to be an argument for expanding capital accumulation among laborers, uh, things that we've talked about here at Cato in the past, like personal accounts for Social Security and such, making it easier for laborers to save and invest would seem to be a good thing. Again, Piketty tends to dismiss this, uh, calls them um, petty bourgeois, and, uh, and, and dismisses the ability of the, of the middle class or workers to, uh, to save and invest. So you say he dismisses that, but what are some of the things that uh, we have talked about here at the Cato Institute that lower the costs for people to get into the, the game of capital accumulation? Well, things we have talked in the past about personal accounts for Social Security, emulating, for example, Chile and some 30 other countries that allow people to save a portion of their payroll taxes and invest that in real assets. We've talked about health savings accounts. We've talked about simply lowering the double, triple, and quadruple taxation on savings and investment, uh, ways that actually allow uh, people who can't afford to pay these taxes to get in on the game of capital accumulation. And presumably in, in other areas, lowering the costs associated with taking those risks uh, as entrepreneurs to jump in and maybe uh, start a business or you, you've identified an opportunity, but you know the, the costs, the hurdles to enter into a market may just be too high. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Mike says. I'll, I'll add, uh, uh, I know you, uh, you guys at Cato talk about this a lot, uh, and it should be talked about, and that is... Uh, uh, getting rid of occupational licensing restrictions, uh, setting up a firm as a way to create capital for yourself. And if occupational licensing restrictions prevent you from setting up a firm, it can be something small like a, you know, a hair braiding shop uh, that might grow over time. And, and all of these restrictions add up to a, a large barrier on ordinary people from accumulating as much capital as they would otherwise accumulate. The question is whether you consider the enemy to be poverty or inequality. Yeah. Piketty seems to be much more concerned with reducing inequality by bringing down the level of prosperity among the rich than he seems by raising poverty, uh, raising levels among the poor. He, he talks, for example, about a wealth tax and admits it would not raise enough money 
to actually provide for programs for the poor because it would discourage economic activity. And he says, but it would still be a good thing because the rich wouldn't be as rich. Well, that seems, seems like a startlingly uh, problematic conclusion to draw, that you, that you would be engaging in this type of uh, wealth transfer that would harm overall prosperity, but you say, well, we should do it anyway. Well, you can always reduce inequality by simply reducing everybody to penury. I mean, uh, I mean, if you simply had everybody be poorer, I guess we'd be more equal. But that doesn't seem to be the goal that we should be striving for. I'd rather be unequally rich. Yeah. yeah. And, and Mike said it a moment ago, uh, uh, Piketty, uh, his, his main value seems to be equality of monetarily measured income or wealth. That, that, and he, he, he has that as his overriding value in his system. And to the extent that those are uneven, for Piketty, that creates a presumption that something is wrong. And, and it creates a presumption that those inequalities will uh, 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 generate social uh, dislocation and, and upheaval, and it's bad for everyone. And so if we reduce these inequalities, everything will be just fine. And again, she's rather cavalierly indifferent to what happens to the actual level, the absolute level of the living standards of the poor. Well, let me uh, hit you with something else here. There has been uh, a literature that has uh, been produced over several years that details how uh, the returns to capital and the returns to labor, that returns to labor have been in relative decline for a long time. It was almost always two-thirds to labor, one-third to capital. And people have observed that returns to labor have in, been in relative decline. Your, your thoughts about that? I mean, as it relates to what Piketty's arguing here, what is the importance of that? I, and we don't have time to get into the details now. I actually doubt, I'm skeptical of those, of those findings. Um, I think a lot of, there have been, dynamic changes in the labor market over the past 25 years, particularly with the IT revolution. It's changed the way that, that people work. It's changed the way that we classify labor and changed the way that we classify returns to various inputs. And I think those changes have not been adequately captured by these older methods of measuring labor, uh, returns to labor and, and, and capital. So I'm skeptical of the conclusion first. So is it over-reliance on cash wages as a measure of returns to uh, labor? I think that's part of it. Um, I, I, I know that the most commonly used uh, measure in the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, uh, the most commonly used measure for measuring wages to ordinary workers, uh, does not look, does not include uh, value of fringe benefits. Now, you can find the value of fringe benefits elsewhere in government statistics, but in the commonly, most commonly used wage statistic, only cash wages are included. And the fact is, since the mid-1970s, the value of fringe benefits for ordinary workers has about doubled in percentage terms from what it was in the, in the, the mid-1970s. And that's just ignore, that's one of the many things that are, that, one of the many problems that I have with these, with, with these data. Yeah, if you actually look at consumption data, you yeah. get uh, a very different view than if you look at if you look at wages. Now, some of that is is credit, which has problems of its own, 
but but some of it is simply the fact that uh, wages no longer capturing uh, the real level of income. Real quickly, on, on, that's true about the credit thing. But but my colleague at the GMU Law School, Todd Zwicky, and a few co-authors, they had a, they had a book out a couple of years ago that that actually cast some doubt on this notion that Americans are, are somehow becoming more spendthrift and and that we're out of our minds uh, uh, using credit cards. So even that the common myth, the common story that credit is is being overextended to Americans is not quite right. If I understand Sawicki's argument there, uh, he argues that the account that you had at your local uh, grocery store has essentially been replaced with a master account that you have with Visa or MasterCard, replacing all these other uh, balances that you had with various other small businesses. There are other things going on, but that's a big part of it, yeah. It also there's also a smoothing of consumption over time, which which you give through credit is essentially people are able to buy large capital goods or to ride through troughs in income by using credit, and then that credit is repaid later on as, as incomes change. Yeah. All right. So what are what are some of the other criticisms that are offered for Piketty's argument? It seems that uh, Don, you're uh, suggesting that by looking at simple uh, at aggregates uh, from a very high level taking snapshots, to use your, your term, and then trying to assemble those snapshots into a motion picture is very problematic. So why is that? My, my biggest problem with the book, <laughs> I have a lot of problems with it, as I said earlier. Another big problem with the book is that although Piketty is an economist, he served briefly on the economics faculty at MIT, uh, there's very little economics in the book. Uh, it does not read as if it's written by an economist. Uh, it is a, a lot of impressive data gathering, although many people have questioned the details of his data gathering. I don't question. I, I didn't explore uh, the behind the scenes of his data well enough to question. So I take his data at face value. Uh, but there's the explanations he gives for what happens. Uh, what's causing these big data aggregates to change have no ec no grounding in economics. It's as if these things just move on their own by some weird, mysterious logic, um, and that's I think that's, that's very disturbing for someone who's claiming to present an economic critique of the current state of the global economy, because it's not an economic critique. <laughs> There's no economics in it. What generally can we say about how uh, working life has changed that causes serious problems uh, for Piketty's argument over, over the past, say, 100 years. Oh, gosh, you look at how people live today compared to how ordinary people live today compared to how they lived 100 years ago. Uh, ordinary people today, uh, we, you know, we all carry around these little slabs <laughs> with us, and we can make at zero marginal cost long distance, things that my generation used to call long distance telephone calls. Uh, your daughter won't know what a long-distance call is unless she's calling Venus when she's when she's my age. Uh, uh, everyone, you know, houses have air conditioning, cars no longer break down, uh, clothing and food are a lot less expensive and a lot more abundant. The quality of life today is just off the charts, higher than it was even when I was growing up in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies. And so, uh, to to imply as Piketty does that this growing inequality means greater material comfort for the super-rich and either stagnant or even decreasing material comfort for the vast majority of people is just plain wrong. He also sort of relies on a stereotype of how the rich earn their money. He has this yes. vision of trust fund babies laying at the pools, sipping their drink with a little can uh, 
umbrella in it or something and doing nothing in exchange for their money, when the reality is most wealthy people earn their money by providing goods and services that the rest of us want. Uh, the vast majority of millionaires and billionaires are first generation. Uh, to, to earn that kind of money. Most of them work very hard. In fact, there's studies out there that show that people who are wealthy actually spend more hours at work than do people who are not wealthy. Uh, the, the basically, this is an earned inequality. So he's ignoring the role of uh, wealthy, idle children frittering away the family fortune. Yeah, he uses a couple some some of his quote unquote empirical data are uh, anecdotes from 19th century European novels. And and as entertaining as those novels are, and even and even if we grant that they were accurate descriptions of the time, that's a very different economy than the uh, certainly the American economy of today. Uh, it is true up until the, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, wealth was held in land. Uh, landed wealth was a lot more stable. Uh, to, to, to extract the wealth from the land did require less creativity and less constant attentiveness. But to extract wealth, constant wealth, from a factory or from a firm, you don't just create the factory or firm and then go lay on the beach and sip your drink and then wait for their turns to come in. You, it has to constantly be monitored, improved, and protected from innovators and kept up with changing consumer tastes. And Piketty misses all of that. None of that's part of his story. Yeah, remember back in, uh, I think it was in the early part of the 20th century, one of the most dynamic and biggest companies in America was the American Match Company that made uh, these type of, you know, kitchen matches that you'd strike uh, against the surface and they'd light up. And, and of course, it doesn't exist now. Uh, and, and the fact that companies like Microsoft or Apple or Google didn't exist 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, we've, we live in a very different, constantly changing uh, environment to, to imply that this is some sort of stable uh, pool of wealth, I think, is very misleading. Yeah. Uh, and yet, there, I think there is an, an intuitive case that a lot of people would make. They see in their towns the decline of retail establishments that employed people. Uh, they've witnessed the rise of, of companies like Amazon that have helped speed uh, the destruction of some uh, so-called Main Street uh, retailers and a lot of uh, production that used to be done in the United States. I'm thinking of the Fruit of the Loom plants in, in my home of Kentucky that went away. Uh, there is an intuitive uh, narrative that you can apply that would jive very well with what Piketty is arguing. Only if you ignore the fact that the, the, the very processes, that, the very facts that you describe are actually their evidence against Piketty. And this is evidence of capital not being permanent. This is evidence of capital being subject to the forces of competition. This is evidence of creative destruction. None of these plants would have disappeared. Uh, if their competitors did not serve consumers better, their competitors em employ people, but the you know the, the the new people who are employed they're not they're often not as concentrated as the people who are or whose jobs are destroyed, uh, and and people miss the larger e uh, economic picture which takes place uh, over larger spaces physically and over larger spans of time temporally. And because it's harder to see larger spaces physically and spans of time temporally, we, we, we focus only on what we can see. And so you focus on the fruit of the loom plant. But I, I think that's evidence—I can understand how people can interpret that 
as evidence in favor of Piketty. In fact, it's evidence against Piketty's thesis. And there may well be mismatches in terms of skills and retraining and things like that. The people who worked at the Fridolum plant may lack the skills, especially over the short term, to move on to become, I don't know, computer software engineers or whatever it is that, that replaced them, which does create dislocations in certain communities. Uh, and that's we've seen the rise of Trumpism and, and things coming out of that. But we've been through this before. I mean, we had the great uh, revolution that took Americans out of agriculture. At one yeah. time, everybody worked on farms, and uh, the number, both in terms of the percentage of the population, but also in terms of absolute terms of people who are farmers now, has declined dramatically. But yet, somehow, these we still have jobs. Uh, people are still working. Yeah. And, and we've seen a dramatic decline in uh, the share that of manufacturing employment represents in terms of the productivity that we get. Well, and a lot of these jobs were, frankly, lousy jobs. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how many people really are out there saying, gee, I hope someday my son or daughter grows up to sit at a loom and, and, or a sewing machine for 20, uh, you know, 16 hours a day uh, sewing shirts? Uh, I mean, we're happy to leave that to China and let them handle that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the same people who uh, are fond of Piketty's message uh, are also uh, people who are in the forefront of calling for restrictions on foreign trade, you know, people, you know, particularly the Bernie Sanders types. Well, uh, if you don't like capital uh, uh, accumulating and, 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 and yielding unearned returns to idle uh, shareholders, then you should welcome foreign competition, because it, it gets rid of those idle returns. It makes those people work harder. And if they don't work harder, they lose their, the value of their capital. Yeah, competition, actually, is the enemy uh, of economic uh, stagnation and, and of accumulated wealth. I mean, it's very hard to maintain your wealth if you don't earn it in the face of, in face of competition. Uh, so I would think, actually, what they'd want is to see more companies, more That's right. expansion of that. Uh, there was a time when the only capital you needed in order to uh, get the one up one up over your competitors was the superior army. Yeah. Well, yeah. And now, and and, and now, comp you know, obviously, so you know, competition in in, in the market uh, gets uh, gets turned into competition to please consumers, and that's a hell of a lot better <laughs> than competition to kill as many of the other guys as you can. And there's a, you know, when, when capitalism you know, came on the scene, it was derided by the people who believed in hereditary goodness of people. I mean, it, it wiped out the nobility. I mean, the idea that your birth determined your place in society. Uh, and then later on, of course, it was old money and all those nouveau riche people who invented something, and now they were rich, too. Uh, creative destruction actually is a remarkably leveling uh, influence. There have been some other technological revolutions that are more recent that, uh, you know, when I travel, I do my best to stay at an Airbnb when it's possible. For uh, any of the trips I go on, I use Uber, I use Lyft. This is, these are assets that people own that are, in the case of a car, a declining asset, in the case of a home, and maybe an appreciating asset. But these are assets that uh, often are, would be laying fallow. Are there, is there something in his statistics that doesn't capture the diverse way, more diverse ways that people earn income? Uh, it's been three years since I've read the book. I, 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 so I can't, I, I'm subject to being corrected on this, but I do not think his statistics pick up those nuances. But let me, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the Uber and uh, compared to taxis thing. It was a story in NPR about a month ago about the decline in the capital value 
of the New York City taxi medallions. And there were people bemoaning this. Oh, these medallions used to grow in value every year, but now Uber comes along and now the medallions are worth only a fraction of what they were worth just a year ago. Well, this, I think this is a great thing. It's due to competition. Uh, now, this was illegitimate capital value to begin with. It was it's caused a, by monopoly. It was but, a created government but, asset, right? right. But, but the underlying story is the same. Uh, when entrepreneurs find a better way to serve consumers, uh, if they're allowed to, if they aren't restricted by the state, they generally uh, move in and serve consumers in those better ways, and the, and the asset values of the existing producers decline, uh, and those pro producers even uh, disappear unless they themselves can change uh, in order to compete adequately with the new. Yeah, in some ways, we ignore the fact that the greatest capital uh, that people can have is the human brain. Right. And, and the fact that, uh, that somebody can start with almost nothing, come up with a new idea, and get rich off of it. I think that's a wonderful thing. I don't know why we would ever want to stop that. We certainly, if we, if we put a stop to that, we'd have a lot less of the things we love in society. Yeah. Yeah. I wish Julian Simon does not appear anywhere, anywhere in, in, in Piketty's book. And, and if he did, I think the book would have been a lot different. If people aren't going to read either Thomas Piketty's voluminous uh, Capital in the 21st Century, or they're not going to read Anti-Piketty, Capital for the 21st Century, uh, published by the Cato Institute, available at Better Booksellers. What would, you, what would you tell them to keep in mind when they're concerned about accumulating capital making their lives worse? Uh, you know, I, because it's on my mind, we mentioned just a moment ago, uh, I, I like very much what Mike just said about the human mind. I would encourage people to read the late, great Julian Simon. Uh, his 1995 book, or 96 book, The Ultimate Resource, explains the real source of human prosperity, human wealth, capital values, and that's human creativity. It's entrepreneurship expressed in the market. And uh, uh, that view gives you a very different, I think, much more realistic and optimistic uh, view of the course of the economy than this very static, mechanical, wooden view that is contained in, in Thomas Piketty's work. Yeah, and I, I would just follow up with saying that inequality and poverty are two different things. Uh, I really dislike poverty. I, I want a lot less of it in our society. I want to do everything we can to help the poor rise up. I couldn't care less about inequality. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, by and large, I think inequality is a good thing. If you doubled everyone's income tomorrow, it would be a wonderful event. Uh, it wouldn't do anything to fix inequality. So I say go ahead and do it. All right, gentlemen, we're yeah. going to leave it there. Okay. The book is Anti-Piketty, Capital for the 21st Century, published by the Cato Institute. And, and thank you both again. Michael Tanner, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Don Boudreau, Professor of Economics at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. And if you would like to pick up a copy of Anti-Piketty, Capital for the 21st Century, you can get that at our website, cato.org. At the Cato Institute Benefactor Summit in Naples, Florida, I sat down with best-selling author of Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance. We talked about poverty, culture, public policy, and the persistently poor economic fortunes of Appalachia. You can listen to the full interview on the Cato Institute's daily podcast. How do you view uh, the Great Society programs, that, you know, authored by in some ways by Eastern Kentucky sure. U.S. Representative Carl D. Jackson. Sure. Um, you know, what, what impact has that had? 
Well, on the one hand, it's difficult not to admire, I think, the intentions behind the Great Society, because it really was the first large-scale effort, I think, to deal with some of these, these long-term multi-generational um, poverty problems. It, it has worked in the sense that there are fewer people living in absolute desperation in Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, all across the country, really. It has worked in that sense. What it has really failed at is creating a truly um, self-sufficient, upwardly mobile group of people. And so, unfortunately, what you have in a lot of these families, a lot of these communities, is people who have only known poverty going back generations. You have, the, you, unfortunately, a sort of perpetual class of people who have never known anything like real economic opportunity. And, and despite the fact that it's prevented a lot of people from starving to death, which is, of course, admirable and necessary, I think the Great Society has really failed at creating a class of people who can rise through the economic ranks. And that's, to me, it's, it's enduring failure. One of the lessons from, we, I mentioned Bill Easterly, one of the lessons from his work, one of the lessons from the work of Peter Bauer, the development economist, and really the crux of the work of F.A. Hayek is we can't design for people a world that will uh, bring out their best attributes, sure. that will make them want to succeed. And the, the lesson really is, is humility with respect to designing policy. But I would argue that the Great Society was not a very humble effort. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that's right. I think the Great Society w was not an especially humble effort. I mean, my sense of this, and you know, I, I, I do think that there has to be some role for policy in these problems. Just absent, you know, absent policy, there's a question of what do you do, and I think you have to do things at the community level, at the local government level, at the civic institution level. But I do think that there's a role for state and federal policy here. Um, but it has to come with a certain amount of humility because the lesson of the past 40 or 50 years of policy interventions is that these really grand efforts tend not to succeed by their own terms. They, they, they tend not to lift people out of poverty and keep them out of poverty for a long, for a long time. That said, I, I think that that humility should counsel us in the favor of really asking tough questions about whether a given policy intervention might work actually figuring out that it does work before scaling it to a multi-billion or even multi-trillion dollar effort. But don't you think that uh, lawmakers, when faced with uh, areas of severe poverty, but with plenty of voters, are uh, strongly incentivized to provide the things that are going to get them reelected? I mean, for from Carl Jackson to Hal Rogers, sure. who's uh, a mover and shaker with respect to pork, uh, that that's just a natural and uh, perhaps inevitable consequence of a political solution to the problem of poverty. Well, that's certainly, um, it, <laughs> I don't know that I'd say it's inevitable. It's certainly something that we see again and again in these circumstances. And so I do think that that should sound a cautionary note before we dive into these problems. I, I think that the worry that I have um, with a lot of these large scale policy interventions is because it, it, is that there's a pressure to do something. You're faced with this problem and politicians want to try to fix the problem. And I think that if you go into it with a fixed mentality instead of an understand and figure out what works maybe at the small scale before trying to scale it massively up, then you end up with a lot of the programs that we've had. Um, and like I said, I think they've, they've been 
they've wasted a fair amount of money, they haven't necessarily worked, and I think they waste political capital in a way that's really important, right? Because people start to lose faith that people, you know, that elected leaders are even capable of solving these problems, or they start to think that it's not even worth solving these problems, which I don't think is necessarily the right approach. The, the current example, actually, that I would use that really worries me on this front is early childhood education, right? So there's some early evidence that early childhood education, when done right, is actually a very powerful tool for giving kids long-term uh, life success. But scaling but problem those is programs. Scaling it has never worked, and there's no good evidence right now that we could scale it to three, four million kids. So I, I think that if we take the approach of let's just fix this problem, then that's how we end up with a program that serves 4 million kids and actually doesn't have fantastic outcomes. But if we approach it with a little bit of humility, I'm open-minded to the fact that eventually we start to figure out levers that we can push and pull that may work. So I'm not a total pessimist here. All right. So, um, you know, when, when I, I'm a big bluegrass music fan, <laughs> a, a lot of my musical heroes came from uh, North Carolina, rural North Carolina, came from uh, Eastern Kentucky. And in the canon of bluegrass music, there's this uh, understanding that if there's not work where you are, this is in the 40s and 50s, before sure. the Great Society, if there's not work where you are, if there's no hope where you are, you leave. Right. But th that kind of mobility or that sense of I need to go find my own fortune uh, has that been in decline in the last 40 or 50 years? My sense is that it has been. And if you look at the data, there's a lot of good evidence that suggests that geographic mobility has dropped off pretty significantly. Now, on the one hand, it's easy to see why, right? In the 40s and 50s, if you didn't leave a place like eastern Kentucky, you might starve to death, right? Where that's obviously not an incentive that people are faced with these days. So I think we have to be mindful of the fact that, again, I don't think that we should want people to starve to death or let them starve to death. But the fact that some of these programs create disincentives to actually move to places where there are more opportunities. And that's not just bad, of course, for the people who are choosing to stay put instead of going and finding better jobs and better work opportunities and so forth. The thing that worries me the most is that it's especially bad for their children who find themselves trapped in places where there just isn't a whole lot of hope. There isn't a whole lot going on. In trying to present a solution, and there, I, I I would argue that there probably aren't many good policy solutions that do not involve a, a large-scale withdrawal of the federal government, uh, at the very least, and perhaps even state government from a lot of these areas. Um, you know, an old econ professor of mine used to say the problem with Eastern Kentucky is that it's overpopulated. Yeah, you know, the, I, I have I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, it's obviously the case that Eastern Kentucky cannot provide enough good jobs for the people who live there, but it's also obviously the case that there are people who grew up there that have an incredible attachment to it, and the the advice just move. While it's something that I've certainly counseled people to do, and it's something that I argue in the book, is that we need more geographic mobility out of these incredibly impoverished areas. I think that any policy thinking that doesn't at least account for the fact that a lot of people aren't just going to move, that they're going to stay attached to that area, um, it, it isn't being serious enough to the way that people are attached to their homes and are going to always be committed to them in one way or another. So I do think we ought to promote more geographic mobility, but I also think that I resist the idea that we can wholesale abandon these areas entirely because the people who live there aren't going to abandon them, and we have to do something for those people. Now, does that mean it's a massive federal policy? Maybe not. 
in, in my view, probably it shouldn't be, at least most of the time. It's interesting you mentioned this word solutions because I always resist the idea that there are solutions to this problem because I think it, it, it sort of envisions the complicated. It sort of envisions the idea that you can a hundred percent fix the problem, right? Like math problems have solutions. And I, I, I tend to think that um, if we can put our thumb on the scale a little bit, if we can actually make things a little bit better for a subset of the population, if we can promote a little bit more upward mobility, then we'll have done as much as we can do. And we'll have frankly done a lot more than, than, than policy has done up to this point. So what evidence indicates that our effort, and, and I will admit that it, it causes a lot of dissonance to me personally, and always has when I lived in Kentucky, that um, there is there was no fix. There was no simple policy yep. uh, that you could just adopt. And then suddenly there are jobs. Suddenly there are the, the people's best uh, parts of themselves are going to be empowered. Um, but at the same time, there are there. And the, so within me and within others, there is this effort. What are we going to do? Right. That a strong desire to do something. Uh, so what promotes upward mobility in your in your view of as a policy matter? Sure. Well, you know, the the program that I've seen that actually provides me with the most optimism was this study that was done in the 90s, I believe, called the Moving to Opportunity Study. And again, it, it's it's the sort of thing that I think we should be doing, which is trying things on a small scale, not spending a ton of money, but then looking at what the long term outcomes are to see whether there may be something worth pursuing on a larger scale. The basic idea was that you take kids who grew up in incredibly impoverished areas and you actually provide various financial incentives to move them and their families to more prosperous areas. And the evidence, you know, Raj Shetty, the Stanford economist, has done some good work on this. The evidence suggests pretty strongly that the kids who moved did much better than the kids who stayed. And importantly, the earlier the kids moved, the better they did. So the kid who moved when he was eight years old did a lot better than the kid who moved when he was 12 years old and so forth. So I, I do think that there are reasons for optimism, things that we might do to, to, to move the needle a little bit. But does that mean you're going to completely eliminate poverty in Eastern Kentucky? No. But does it mean that you'll help some people have better opportunities? Yes. And I think that's a worthwhile effort. Free speech is more protected in the United States than virtually anywhere else in the world. Floyd Abrams views that as a very good thing. In his new book, The Soul of the First Amendment, Abrams details the uniqueness and importance of broad protection for unfettered communication. He spoke at the Cato Institute in May. What I've tried to uh, outline in the book with a variety of examples is the wide range of situations in which there is far more protection for free speech and free expression in this country than elsewhere. Uh, and I mean countries that care about free expression but simply do not enforce it as we do. Two examples, Canada had a situation where in Saskatchewan, uh, 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 high schools were about to teach about homosexuality. A religious fanatic, I think one would say, went door to door and put in over a thousand mailboxes a flyer he had written, 
basically saying uh, they're, they're going to advocate buggery, they're going to advocate this, and in, in the crudest possible terms, uh, denounced uh, homosexuality. That's a crime in Canada. It's hate speech is illegal in Canada. Hate speech is illegal throughout Western Europe in democratic countries. Uh, we protect it, and we protect it to the point that when the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which is a family which styles itself as a church and goes from church to church around the country, when American veterans uh, who have been uh, killed in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan are being mourned with signs as close to the church as the police will allow, denouncing the dead soldiers and saying that this is God's justified punishment for America being too soft on gays, uh, all used in, in much coarser and more brutal uh, language. So what Canada says is illegal speech is not only protected here, but Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, said is especially protected that the speech was about matters of public importance and public interest, homosexuals in the military, how to treat homosexuals in general. All those matters, the Chief Justice said, are matters which uh, are matters of extreme public interest and controversy, and as to which there can be no censorship. Uh, it's just one of many examples uh, in which we give significantly uh, more protection than is the norm uh, throughout uh, Western Europe. One example I cite is some things that then-candidate Trump said about Muslims and Mexicans, uh, which could well have been deemed criminal uh, throughout Western Europe. And there are cases in England and Belgium uh, uh, described in my book uh, in which people with uh, signs uh, saying, stop the Islamification, or go home, or written for the Brits. Those sorts of signs were used as evidence and proof of uh, a sort of hate speech which is actionable throughout Western Europe and not here. A final example. Throughout Western Europe now, not in Canada, but throughout Europe now, there is now a, quote, right to be forgotten, unquote. Uh, a, a right which is basically as follows. When information has been published in newspapers or been on television or radio some years ago, not clear how many it has to be, but usually it's been over 10 years or so, and it is no longer considered relevant, and it is defamatory of a person mentioned, uh, the, the rule now in Europe is that Google may not carry it if individuals object. So if people say to Google, uh, I'm, I'm listed here, I'm, I'm in a newspaper article, it's, it's 20 years old. Either I did something wrong, e even convictions. I was convicted of this, or even more, uh, uh, I, I, had, I was 
brought into a newsworthy situation, uh, which uh, I, I don't like people to think about or talk about. And I didn't do anything wrong. And it can't be relevant to anything now. Google can be required and is required to delete it on the grounds that it is no longer, quote, relevant. I don't have the slightest doubt uh, that, that that rule of law, which is quite new, I mean, I'm talking five or six years, uh, uh, would be unconstitutional here and unanimously held to be unconstitutional here. We would say it's a destruction of history. We would say it's true accurate information, uh, we don't ban it. Uh, um, and our, our friends in Europe say quite the opposite. So Google has already deleted over half a million uh, uh, references to individuals uh, at their request, sometimes as a result of court order, uh, sometimes because Google knows that it has to do it. Republican U.S. Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky has a simple fix for the problems caused by the U.S. Department of Education and the department. He explained why at the Cato Institute in April. Nobody uh, attracted as much attention, no nominee that Trump made for his cabinet as Betsy DeVos. She was a lightning rod, and we were, we were receiving dozens of phone calls every day imploring me to stop her nomination. Well, clearly, uh, public education had failed the callers because the Constitution says that the Senate has the advice and consent role, not the House. And I serve in the House, not the Senate. So we would typically inform them that that's how uh, Congress works and the government works, that I didn't have a role in the vote. And they would say, well, that's just a cop out. You can do something to stop her. We know you can, so do something. So for four years I've been in Congress and I remembered one of my campaign promises was to eliminate the Department of Education. Yet I had not yet introduced that bill and I had worked on a bill and I realized that this was the time to introduce that bill. So um, what I did is the day they voted on Betsy DeVos, I carried my bill to the floor of the House of Representatives and I made sure the timing was precise. I texted Rand Paul's chief of staff to make sure that Rand was on the floor at that very moment voting on Betsy DeVos's confirmation. And that's when I dropped the bill in the hopper. So now when they call up and ask, you know, what, what, are, what am I doing to stop Betsy DeVos? We, my staff informs them that I'm trying to get her fired, that I'm trying to eliminate her position. Um, I have nothing against Betsy DeVos. It's, it's the position that we're after. And if they persist um, and, and ask, well, what's he doing? And we explain the bill. Then the next question we ask is, well, do you think Trump, President Trump, or his nominees should be making decisions about what or how your children learn? And that's a, that's a difficult question for them to answer at that point. And so right now I think there's an opportunity because a lot of folks on the left are in some sense ecumenical about what happens to the department now that Betsy DeVos is leading it, now that the, the thought leader or the secretary of that department is not one of them 
they'd, some of them would almost rather see it gone. And on the Republican side, it's been part of, it was part of the platform, the Republican platform in 1996. An official part of the national platform was to get rid of the Department of Education. In fact, uh, Jimmy Carter implemented the Department of Education in his last year uh, as president, as and some say, I know we're not supposed to question another person's motives in DC, but some say as an election ploy to get more votes and get reelected, and it didn't work. But um, it gave Ronald Reagan something to campaign on, which was to eliminate the Department of Education. And so that was one of his campaign promises. Um, and we're seeing a lot of those go by the wayside here lately. <laughs> but uh, that was one of Reagan's campaign promises that never came to fruition. But I think it's always been uh, a Republican tenant to give states more authority and, and beyond that, local more local control is better. So I think there's an, an opportunity here. There was some discussion in my office about whether it should be a very simple bill or if it should be very involved and describe what happens to all of these various programs that the federal government supports that fund local education. And uh, by the way, my staff, I have very diverse staff. Uh, I think it's important to have a diverse staff because that way nobody always agrees with you and the staff has good debates. So half of my staff are Ron Paul people and the other half are Rand Paul people. And we argue incessantly about things uh, such as the Department of Education and how, what the bill structure it should take. I, in fact, I had another congressman come to me on the floor. He was a freshman. He had been elected for, and, and sworn in for all of four weeks. And uh, he was interrogating me about why the bill was only one sentence. And I was getting a little bit annoyed I have to admit, he'd only been there four weeks and I've been there four years. And he's like, but why would you keep it to one sentence? Shouldn't you describe what's going to happen to Pell Grants? Or shouldn't you describe, you know, what's going to happen to teacher training grants? Or shouldn't those things be in the bill? And I explained to him the art of consensus is about getting people to agree on, on at least one thing before you try and get into the details too far. And so that a one sentence bill was the best way to do this. Um, a week later, he came back and asked me to co-sponsor his one sentence bill to eliminate the department or uh, the EPA. So uh, I think that's the most sincere form of flattery is to, is to copy it. So there are now two one sentence bills um, to eliminate two separate departments in the federal government. But what would happen with the things the federal government does right now that my bill does not prescribe? Uh, for. Um, you could do three things. I put them into th three different categories of things that could happen with the, with the programs. The first and least disruptive option is to keep all the federal programs and assign them to departments that already exist. This is how it functioned. A lot of these programs existed before the Department of Education uh, existed. And so, uh, for instance, a lot of people may not realize that Head Start is already in the department in HHS. It's not in the Department of Education. Maybe you already know that school lunches are run by the USDA, not the Department of Education. And there are other examples where you, you might have thought the Department of Education is doing these things, but they're done somewhere else. So you could take, for instance, Pell Grants and student loans and move them to the Treasury Department, where it might be more appropriate. Uh, and you could, you could do those sort of things. Or the teacher training grants, right? We've got uh, training programs 
most of those are in the Department of Labor already. You can put those in the Department of Labor. Okay, so if you do that, all my bill does is basically get rid of Betsy DeVos's job and 4,500 uh, bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. The uh, second thing you could do is to block grant the money for all these programs to the states. I have, uh, um, let's say, technical schools and uh, even four-year schools that come to my office from Kentucky and they say, we need more flexibility with Pell Grants. We, uh, particularly the ones that are uh, getting two years degrees and they go year round. They're like, we can't get the grants and the loans to qualify for the summer portion that our students are enrolled in. And we need flexibility to do that. Well, if the state administered those programs, the state could decide what the people in that state need to learn and could offer uh, more flexibility themselves if you did the block grants. Um, the third option, which is my preferred option, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist, but I'm also an ideologue, a proud ideologue, so I will disclose my, my ideology here informs me that the state should handle all of this, the revenue collection and the disbursement, not the federal government, and just get the federal government out of it totally, because for that 10% of the money that the states use on their education, they have to comply with a lot of federal mandates, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer here. One of the issues of worker migration into the U.S. is that the federal government sets the quotas, and those quotas are often exhausted within days. A possible solution offered in Congress is to put states in greater control of some immigration. Cato policy analyst David Beer explained the idea at a Capitol Hill briefing in May. Federal government determines the number of workers who may enter the United States, the type of work they perform, and uh, the terms under which they uh, live here. The question today is whether any of these functions could be better handled at the state level. As a legal matter, this is a question that Congress can answer. Uh, most recently in the Arizona v. U.S. decision, the Supreme Court held that states are limited uh, in this area of law only to the extent that Congress chooses uh, to limit them. So should it concede some of its authority or not? From an economic perspective, the static federal monopoly makes little sense. In a market economy, you want changes to happen quickly at the local level. The federal system doesn't change until local problems build into national ones, while a decentralized system could head off issues before a crisis develops. Despite widespread agreement that there has been a crisis for over a decade, still no changes have happened. The federal-only system also doesn't make sense politically. Giving states greater control would increase the popularity of immigration programs, and fights in Congress that have killed reform efforts in the past could be effectively handed off to state capitals across the country. Congress could fix the system without needing to find agreement in every area. From an enforcement perspective, guest worker programs have historically reduced illegal immigration, creating an incentive for people to come legally. And limiting workers to a single state is much easier, enforcement-wise, than limiting them to a single employer, as our current uh, federal guest worker programs do. 
More importantly, according to the Government Accountability Office, 98% of visa overstays are individuals who entered as tourists, not as guest workers. This idea has been effectively, successfully implemented in two other large geographically diverse former British colonies, Australia and Canada. Both countries use regional visa programs to distribute immigration more fairly throughout the country and allow rural areas to obtain labor for difficult jobs. The popularity of these programs can be seen in their increasing numbers in recent years. They are now the second largest source of economic migration to these countries. The United States has a long history of federalism, yet it has not so far applied this tradition to immigration. Some states have already passed bills uh, recommending that Congress uh, allow them to control a state-based immigration program. All states already directly sponsor visa applicants, either through their capacity as uh, universities or their capacity as employers. These protocols could be expanded to allow states to sponsor workers on behalf of industries in their states. Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin is one of the sponsors of legislation to put states in charge of certain kinds of immigration. He discussed his proposal at that same Capitol Hill briefing in May. I got involved in this issue, you know, really when I did take over the chairmanship of Homeland Security. Uh, we listed four primary uh, objectives or, or goals or, or top priority problems we had to grapple with and started with border security cybersecurity, protecting our critical infrastructure, and combating Islamist terror uh, or any other violent extremism. And in that series of hearings, we certainly started you know, laying out some real information in terms of the extent of this problem. Uh, we held a series of mobile office hours during the, and this is actually before I became chairman, but we, during the whole immigration, comprehensive immigration bill, uh, debate in the United States Senate, we held a series of, of mobile office hours. And in there, you know, we, we announced it was going to be on the immigration bill. And so showing up at these smaller venues, we had people that are very pro-immigration policies and very, you know, stridently anti-immigration. What was very interesting, almost universally, what ended up happening is the, the very pro-immigration would certainly state their case. Oftentimes, it'd be, let's say, a, a husband and wife. Uh, the, the wife, let's say, would be an American citizen, or husband maybe brought in as a two-year-old into America. They got married. They started having kids. And their primary plea was they weren't looking for citizenship. They just didn't want, for example, in that case, the husband being deported. They would tell their story. And then the, the very anti-immigrant would talk about maybe being displaced in, in a job situation. Uh, what happened during those meetings is people came together and really understood the other perspective. So they maybe started pretty divided, but at the end of the meeting, by the end of the discussion, they really were very often on the same page, looking for a real solution to the problem, which is what I truly believe this bill would become a pilot for. Now, the other thing I want to point out is, as I've traveled around the state of Wisconsin for the last six years, there's not one manufacturer I've visited that can hire enough people. Not one. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. First of all, we tell all of our children you have to have a four-year degree, which implies somehow that, ooh, you know, factory work or being a plumber or electrician is, is second-class status. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
The other point, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a Nick Eberstadt article at the very end of this in Commentary Magazine, we pay people not to work. I just came from a budget committee hearing on economic growth. We had uh, scholars from AEI, uh, economists from the NFIB, and then we had uh, Jeffrey Sachs testify. Um, I made the point in my business over 31 years of manufacturing, there were two things I needed to start a business and to grow a business. I needed labor and I needed capital. So we need to make sure that we have enough labor in this country if we want to grow our economy. We, we can't starve our business community of the necessary labor from low skill to high skill. We got to fill in all the gaps. Uh, according to The Atlantic magazine, they did a study, found that about 40% of Fortune 500 companies were, born, were founded by first or second generation immigrants, 40%. That's an amazing statistic, possibly even more amazing, and shows you where we're going in the future. Uh, Regeneron uh, does something called the Regeneron Science Talent Search. It's oftentimes referred to as the Junior Nobel Prize. The latest competition here held in, I think it was March of 2017, of the 40 finalists, 83% were children of first-generation gen immigrants. 75% um, of the parents of those children worked on an H-1B visa, which shows that that's pretty important. We just came from a TechNet uh, group uh, sponsored by Orrin Hatch. I think it was Aaron Levy of Box made the impassioned point that you know, we can't assume that we're going to continue to have the, the world leading Silicon Valley, you know, producing all these marvels of innovation, because right now we are educating the bright, best and brightest from around the world, and then we're allowing them, you know, of course, they've got, they have freedom, but you know, we're not incentivizing them in any way, shape, or form to staying here to contribute to our economy. They're going home to China and to India. And he said time is running out. If we continue to allow that brain drain, at uh, some point in time, we're not going to be the center of, of the globe in terms of innovation when it comes to the, the largest growing portion of our economy, which is really the, the, the whole internet and uh, uh, information technology part of it. Last two points I want to make. North Carolina Growers Association. Uh, this is a group in North Carolina. They're the largest users of H-2B visas, right, H-2B. And they supply laborers for agriculture in North Carolina. About, they, try, they place about 6,500 laborers for North Carolina uh, agriculture every year. From 1998 to 2012, unemployment in North Carolina never got lower than 130,000. In the year 2011, Unemployment, the number of people unemployed in North Carolina was 489,000. Of the 6,500 workers they are trying to put into agriculture in North Carolina, 268 were native born. Of those 268, 245 were hired. Only 167 of those 245 hired showed up to work in agriculture. And of those, 200, or of those 167 that showed up to work, only seven lasted the entire growing season. So when you talk about, well, all we got to do to replace those 7.7 .7 million foreign-born workers that are here in this country illegally is just pay higher wages, um, I think the facts, certainly that anecdote, shows differently. Plus, I would argue we are operating in a global economy. And so businesses uh, across this country compete 
based on global pricing for their end products. And so they don't have the latitude necessarily of paying sky-high salaries to attract native-born Americans to do some pretty hard work. You know, picking, picking vegetables in, in the fields. You know, again, you, you understand the, the hard labor that every wave of immigrant ever coming to this country has engaged in. Final point. Uh, this is, I would really recommend you read this article uh, by Nick Everstadt in Commentary Magazine. Um, I want to just read a couple quotes. And now, Nick Everstadt, I think he's a scholar at AEI. He's an expert dem demographer. He says, between early 2000 and 2016, America's overall work rate for Americans aged 20 and older underwent a drastic decline. It plunged by almost five percentage points from 64.6 to 59.7. Now, he says, unless you're a labor economist, you may not appreciate just how severe a fall off in employment such numbers attest to. Post-war America never experienced anything comparable. He goes on to say, plain fact is that 21st century America has witnessed a dreadful collapse of work. And again, what I say, in, in, in Wisconsin, we don't have enough workers to fill out our manufacturing base. One of the things he talked about in this article, it's a very thoughtful article, very, very all-encompassing in terms of what the problem is, he talked about the opioid epidemic. And he said, the opioid epidemic of pain pills and heroin that have been ravaging and shortening lives from coast to coast is a new plague in our new country. He said, in the fall of 2016, Alan Kruger, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, did, did a study. He said, according to his work, nearly half of all prime working age male labor force dropouts, an army now totaling roughly 7 million. Is that just a coincidence? So you got 7 million prime working age labor force dropouts. They're currently taking pain medication on a daily basis, almost half of them. And then he, he talks about, well, why is that? And one of, the, one of the things he points to is Medicaid. Um, as of 2013, over one-fifth of all civilian men between 25 and 55 of age, years of age were on Medicaid beneficiaries. And he said for the prime age people, not in the labor force, the share was over 58%. Then he goes on and kind, kind of describes a process right now where these individuals on Medicaid claiming disability can obtain opioid drugs, and then, if you ever, ever heard of drug diversion, they're certainly part of that, that industry of drug diversion poisoning Americans. So again, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to relate the social pathologies of a lot of government policy, a lot of our, our social safety net, which is, you know, in many respects, weaken the American family, pay people not to work, give them drugs that they can sell in the diversion market, and he finally said that disability checks and means-tested benefits cannot support a lavish lifestyle, but they can offer a permanent alternative to paid employment, and for growing numbers of American men, they do. The rise of these programs has coincided with the death of work for larger and larger numbers of American men not yet of retirement age. Now again, I brought in to this discussion of a state-based guest worker program the social pathologies, and I would argue being driven by government policy. Until we look at that honestly, and we start analyzing what has caused this incredible drop in workforce participation, what has caused the rise of opiate overdoses, why can't Wisconsin manufacturers, why can't small businesses find enough people 
to work. Now available as a revised Cato ebook and paperback, Arnold Kling's The Three Languages of Politics is a precise and insightful guide on how we can lower the barriers coarsening our politics. This isn't a book of one ideology or another. Instead, it's about how we communicate issues, our politics and ideologies, and how language intended to persuade can too often divide. Kling offers a way to see through all of this so we can incorporate new perspectives and cooperation into the important issues that we share and must resolve. The Three Languages of Politics is available at Cato.org and retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.